Well, hey, if you have a Bible, would you open it to Exodus chapter 20, Exodus 20, and uh, and we'll get into the text in just a minute. If you are new with us, welcome. We're super glad that you are here. We are in a series that we're calling Spiritual EQ. We're really, what we're doing is we're looking at how the scriptures teach us to live out an emotionally healthy spirituality, that that intelligence matters, but emotional intelligence matters. In fact, that God is most concerned with what's happening inside of us. It's more important than what we agree to or how we behave, but actually how we most deeply experience life is what God is into. Jesus is invested in saving, healing, rescuing, and restoring people as whole people. Our interior lives matter to God because they're the wellspring from which the rest of our lives are affected, either for good or for bad. One of the ways that we're kind of framing this series is, uh, is in terms of why this matters, is um, this picture of a bucket that I'm going to show right here. Um, this is an old school bucket known as a stave bucket. It's full of vertical slats that are all neatly fit together. And... Um, and you could have a lot of really great staves. You could have 90% great staves. But if you've got one short stave, how much water is that, gonna, that bucket going to hold? Like as much as your shortest stave, right? And so it's a similar thing. We can say, yeah, I've got all these great aspects of my, my personality. People are endeared to me. I'm serving in my area of passion. I'm crushing it in my devotional life. But when it comes to how I feel about my identity... When it comes to how I relate to the people closest to me, when it comes to the power the past has over me, well, that's a different story. See, God's invested in, in our buckets being able to hold a lot more water than just, you know, one low stave. So we tend to be whole people, and our lives will only be as whole and holy as our least developed dimension of ourselves. And so that is why this series matters so much. And in fact, as a follow-up to this series, here's my one announcement for us this morning. As a follow-up to our series, we're offering a class the first week in November. It's a four-week class called Redeeming His Image, and it's really an exploration on who God really is, but also looking at the dirt we have on our lens as we look toward God. Like, what, what are some of our distortions of who he is? And then who is he really? And Ken Dial is going to be teaching that. Ken's over there. He exudes Jesus. This is somebody that I love. And he has a British accent. So you'll want to listen to everything he's saying. And, uh, and so it's a great follow-up to spiritual EQ, a way to kind of dive deeper and explore how do we redeem the image we have of our Father? And in the process, we'll see him redeeming us as the ones made in his image. So it's really kind of a beautiful thing. Well, speaking of images, Halloween is around the corner. Who's pumped for candy? Uh, rotten teeth, dentist trips in the month of November. And... Uh, well, the reality is, this means that every end cap at your local Target or Fred Meyer has some like creepy things on them, right? And so my daughter just realized that there are such things in this world as ghosts, and she's like developed a new phrase, like, oh, that's so Terry. Like, yeah, that is pretty scary, isn't it? And so she understands now that whatever ghosts are, they're not pleasant, they're creepy, they're Terry. And for about a year and a half, we owned a dog named Jake, and uh, Jake was psychotic, um, he had some serious neuroses that ended up getting him exiled from our home. But um, we loved him dearly. But Jake also became aware of a very Terry ghost. 
And uh, it was the ghost that would make noises uh, in the garage and blow hot air up from the floor and occasionally move the curtains around. And every time, man, that thing kicked on, it was like tailspin barking, like he was certain that our heating system existed to torment him and threaten the family he loved so dearly. Uh, and so, because, because here's, here's the thing, with Jake, the reality was this, that there was, uh, he didn't have the discernment to know that his own feelings and behavior were being dominated and ruled by something perfectly safe and normal to any house in the Pacific Northwest. And the reality is that for each of us, just like Jake, uh, we have the potential to be ruled by, to be dominated by forces we fail to understand. The, the reality is each of us is shaped. We're shaped by what's happened to us, the things pe- people have done to us, the things people have said to us, the things we ourselves have done. And to the extent that we fail to understand those shaping moments, those shaping relationships, the truth is that our feelings and our behavior will be ruled and dominated by forces outside of our awareness and beyond our grasp. And the less aware we are of how our past has power over our present perspectives and our present attitudes, the greater the damage will be that we cause ourselves and others. Are you with me so far? All right. So the reality is we either take ownership of our story or our story will have ownership over us because the past is powerful. Because it has momentum that connects into the present and affects our trajectory for the future. In fact, the Bible says that sin lives on from one generation to the next. We find this principle in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. And the scene for this is where Christian Baal is meeting with, uh, uh, sorry, where Moses is meeting with Yahweh. And he's, the whole community of Israel has just been freed from slavery and they're waiting God's direction to the kind of community life they're to have. And this is, what God says. God spoke all these words to Moses. He says, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You will have no other gods before me besides me, okay? Uh, And you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath the waters below, and you shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. This is like a kind of a heavy passage, isn't it? You stop, and maybe those seem like harsh words, but let's make sure we are super clear on a couple of things. Here's what God is not saying. God is not saying that when your grandpa sinned, you're getting punished for it. Right? He's not saying that because of something somebody else does, you're held accountable for their actions so what is he saying? He's saying three things. The first thing is this, that, that generational sin is a thing. Generational sin is a real thing. In other words, that there is a bent to sin or a bent more accurately, a bent towards specific sins that can be and are frequently passed on 
from one generation to the next. Uh, if maybe a benign example of this would be as a kid you thought to yourself I will never have an anger problem like my mom and then as an adult you said oh no I have an anger problem like my mom and there's more extreme examples right there's plenty of examples I choose that one because sometimes that's the hardest one to see but also the easiest one to see as generational sin where what has happened in our family continues on in us. The second thing this is saying is that sin has consequences, that sin always, always creates catastrophic collateral damage. That that sin, no matter how much we wish and pretend that our choices to sin are made in a vacuum, the reality is that personal sin always has generational momentum. And some of you have experienced this in heinous ways where someone else has chosen folly, has chosen rebellion, has done violence against God's way of shalom, and you have paid the price dearly. And you see the ripple effect. And there is a ripple effect. Thirdly, The last thing that I'll mention about what this is saying today is this, that the key to understanding the heart from which God says this is to see that on the scales of God's mercy and judgment, mercy wins every time. That look at this, what the text says here, that that, there's this punishing of the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. In other words, God is invested in halting the momentum of sin and its effects and continuing an extenuating blessing. That God's heart is always to show love and mercy wherever it will be embraced and accepted. Do you see the heart from which this is said? So, this is not saying that you get punished for something someone else does, but odds are, Previous sins that happened in your ancestors may very well be living on in you. And if you don't put an end to them, they will have catastrophic consequences for the people ahead of you. Kind of heavy, right? So here's the reality. Exodus 20 is saying that your family of origin matters a lot. That your family of origin has enormous effects on you. But not only sins done in the past, just the the past in general has an enormous effect and a tremendous shaping power. And in order to move forward in your spiritual life, your walk with the living God, we have to go backwards to understand just how have I already been shaped. And and the reality is in our room that, that... Some of you have a past and a shaping moments in your life that are just atrocious, that give you nightmares. Some of you have had your innocence just absolutely ripped away from you. Some of you have come from homes where your parents split and your security was taken from you. Others of you come from places that were so impoverished that the notion that you had enough was never something you were familiar with. Others of you came from places of such affluence that you can't seem to shake a sense of entitlement. 
Some of you have had a spouse abandon you or cheat on you in ways that have robbed you of your joy and the life you were committed to. Others of you experienced enormous success at something in your life and it shaped an even greater insecurity in you because you are now afraid that you have nothing left to offer besides what you have already accomplished. The truth is in a room like this, there are thousands of moments, thousands of people and relationships that have incredible power over the way each one of us feels and behaves every single day. So the real question is how, then, do we break the power of the past? How do we break the power of the past? This is the question, because the reality is breaking the power of the past is one of the most significant pathways to an emotionally healthy spirituality. So one of the best places to begin is in Genesis 50, with the story of Joseph. Would you rewind in your Bibles back 20 chapters to Genesis 50. Um, it is the story of Joseph. Joseph is a man with a past. He's a guy not only with a past, but a very painful past. And in order to understand the lessons that we have to gain from his life on how to break the power of the past, I need to give you a recap of his journey. Okay? Here's the thing. Joseph was the youngest of 12 brothers. He was the little guy uh, into a big family, a family with very powerful dynamics. He is the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. We did a series on him in August. Anybody remember Abraham? <laughs> Thank God. Okay, so Abraham is the guy that God says, through you, through your family, through your offspring, I will set the story of the world back on track, bless the nations, and right what is wrong in creation. Okay, so big, great, dynamic pedigree. And yet, we have a family here with a dynamic of horrible deception. Abraham lies twice about who his wife is, says to some very powerful people that she's his sister, right? Then Isaac uh, as well, um, I think, lies to himself about who God really wants to bless. And then Jacob is known as a liar. He lies to his dad Isaac's face. That Not only is there a, a dynamic of deception in the family, there is a dynamic of sexual addiction and misogyny and mistreatment of women, starting with Abraham, who, who takes his wife's advice with the weirdest spousal advice in the history of man and sleeps with basically a sex slave named Hagar, Right? And, and then has this, like, love child with her, and, and it's like this very weird thing. Alright? And, but then Isaac comes along and has a very, I think, miserable marriage. And then Jacob comes along and has 12 kids with not one, not two, not three, but four baby mamas. And all of them are involved in this very messed up family. Okay, so like mistreatment of women, like misuse of sexuality, big time in the family. Then there's this dynamic of favoritism and sibling rivalry, starting with Abraham and this rivalry between Isaac and Ishmael. And then Isaac mishandles his relationships with his sons. And there's this awful competition between Esau and Jacob. And then sure enough, Jacob favors his youngest son and it creates horrible sibling rivalry. All of this, by the way, is this family God said is, is going to bless the nations. All right? This is, this is like your best family on the planet. Okay? Whew! Every family is messed up. Let's just 
Get that straight. So Joseph, the story picks up with Joseph at age 17. And Joseph has uh, been receiving some really interesting dreams, okay? He's been receiving these dreams about, like, how his family will eventually, like, bow down to him. And so he cruises on into the breakfast table, and everybody's eating their, like, oats. And he comes along and says, by the way, you guys are all going to bow down to me. Well, how do you think that's going to go when your youngest brother's like, power play, everybody's going to bow down to me. It's not going to go over super well, is it? And so uh, not only does he kind of arrogant in his air with his family, but Jacob, Joseph's dad, favors him too. And as a sign of it, he gives him a super stylish Armani blazer or Technicolor dream coat. It's this kind of coat that looks really, it's special. It elevates his status above his brothers. And later on, when his brothers are off in a distant land, Jacob sends Joseph to go get him and bring him back. And on his way, they see him at a distance and they plot together and they say, let's get him. And they want to kill him. Then Reuben, one of the brothers, says, no, let's throw him in this pit. And they end up selling him to a bunch of slavers who cart him off to Egypt. Like tragic moments. He's assaulted and he's kidnapped and he's sold as property. And the brothers return back to Jacob and they have his Technicolor dream coat and they've got it ripped up and there's animal blood on it. And they're like, I don't know what happened. Some kind of wild cougar creature like must have gotten your son. And he weeps and it's bad, right? And so Joseph, the Bible says, though, even though he's been assaulted and kidnapped and sold into slavery, He's sold into the house of a guy named Potiphar, who is this Egyptian official. He's like an army uh, special ops guy. And, uh, and he's elevated in this guy's home to being essentially the master of the house. And he takes charge of everything in Potiphar's household because Joseph is wise and he's good at organizing things. And so it gets him power and influence. However, the Bible also says that he is handsome and well-built, which means that he's the Ryan Gosling of his time saying things like, hey, girl, let me fold that laundry for you. And it, and it, and it leads to a very intense moment where he's attacked now by another wild cougar type creature who comes along and says will you sleep with me right potiphar's wife comes up to him and and makes sexual advances at him and and of course he chooses integrity in this moment and he runs and he flees from sexual temptation but as a woman scorned she falsely accuses him of rape which lands him in prison dun 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 But then, amazingly, God shows him favor and his skills at organizing things and his wisdom get him, again, power and influence. And eventually, Pharaoh gets wind that there's a guy named Joseph in our prisons that can read and interpret dreams and help us out with those dreams that are causing you, Pharaoh, horrible nightmares. And so Joseph comes to Pharaoh's house and discerns that all of Pharaoh's dreams mean that for the next seven years, the land will experience great abundance, but the seven years following, there will be a horrible famine in the land. And you need to start collecting food yesterday. So Pharaoh looks at Joseph and says, well, you seem wise and discerning. I'm going to put you in charge of that effort. Now, at this point of the story, Joseph is the second most powerful person on the most powerful empire that the world has ever seen. And then the famine hits and Jacob sends his sons, his remaining sons, to Egypt to go collect food. He says, don't worry about how much it costs, even if they're extorting you, like Chipotle and guacamole. You go and you go bring us food, right? And so they come down to Egypt, but they don't recognize Joseph because the last time they saw him, he was crying in a pit. But now he looks like Yul Brynner and he's got a Fu Manchu and he is in charge of everything going on in the entire nation of Egypt. 
And so they come before Joseph and they bow before him and they request food. And this launches a whole sequence of events where Joseph essentially orchestrates a discovery process for his brothers to reconcile what they've done with who he is. And finally, after a while, he becomes known to them and they begin to patch up their relationship and their entire family is now living in Egypt and Jacob, their father, dies. And at the very end of the book of Genesis, we see a final interaction that reveals the depth of how Joseph, Joseph has broken the power of the past. Read along with me. Joseph, or sorry, when Joseph's brothers saw, this is sorry, Genesis 15 verse 15, Genesis 50 verse 14. When Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, they said, if Joseph holds a grudge against us, he will pay us back for all the wrongs we did to him. So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you were to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of your servants, the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. The saving, or I'm sorry, intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to him, to them. Wow. So Joseph He stands in direct contrast to every person in his family. This is the first guy who hasn't lied in the narrative in the family. He's the first guy who's actually fleed from sexual sin. He's the first guy to reject a posture of competition and rivalry. And instead, he treats his brothers more like God than any other character in the entire Old Testament except for God. What has happened in his life that has allowed him to break the power of the past? Let's take a look at three things I want to show you this morning from this text. Three things. The first thing is this. Joseph grieves his loss and he evaluates its impact. See, his brothers come to him and they're probably looking more for security than forgiveness. But they say, essentially, Joseph, we don't want you to punish us according to the way we've treated you. But look at Joseph. What's his response? It says, when the message came, he wept. He wept. And this isn't the first time that he's wept. Back in chapter 43, when he meets his brother Benjamin for the first time, he withdraws to a private room and has a decent cry. He weeps. He's weeping over what's happened. What what, what are we doing when we're weeping? What are we doing? I would suggest to you that when we weep and when Joseph wept, He's entering into his pain. He's experiencing his pain. He's looking into his loss. He's looking at what cost him, and he's experiencing his pain. See, his weeping means that he isn't trying to numb his pain, and it means that he isn't trying to ignore his pain. These are the two things that we most typically do when we have pain in our stories. We try to numb it, and we try to ignore it. But Joseph enters into it. And here's the thing about entering the pain of our past. And this is so important, friends, because when 
we have pain in our life. Pain and grief is a great place to visit. It is a horrible place to live. And so we don't want to live there, but we also don't want to avoid it. And so he moves toward it. He moves toward his pain, and he takes a good look at it. See, when he weeps, he's acknowledging what his brother's violence against him has cost him. I mean, think of all it cost. Think of what it cost him. It cost him time with his dad. It cost him his inheritance and his identity. All the things that, that mean security and identity in the ancient Near East have been ripped from him. He doesn't just move to a new city with an iPhone and find the coolest new coffee shop. Everything about his life has been ripped away. He's lost time with his brother and his mom and his family. And one of the things that I've begun begun to realize recently in my life is that I have had a tendency over the years to minimize pain in my life. It's amazing how sometimes as a pastor you can look at other people's pain and go, ah, yeah, let's like look at this. But then your own pain, you can go, it's not that important. I can minimize it. And I've recognized this in myself. Like I can very quickly minimize the impact of other people's choices on me and go, oh, it's fine. Or you can't hurt me. I'm not going to let that person's comment hurt me. I won't admit that something's painful. But why is that? What is that? I'll tell you what it is. It's arrogance. And it's pride, isn't it? It's arrogance and pride that says, I'm more important. I'm better. I'm somehow above that pain. But is it true? No, I'm not better. I'm not more important and I'm not steel. And in fact, real strength isn't saying you can't hurt me. Real strength is actually the willingness to own the impact and say this felt not good. Here's what this felt for me. It's something God has been working on in me. And we can never be free of the power of the past until we have evaluated what our past has cost us. Only then will we begin to be able to live free of it. Um, I personally grew up in a really pretty good family. Um, there were some rougher moments here and there, and there were some dynamics that, that have proven challenging as life has developed but all in all I have really loving parents they love each other they love me they're fun they're funny they're great grandparents they're great in-laws they are fantastic and yet again remember what we learned from Abraham's family every family's messed up there were some things and patterns in my family that messed me up and one of them was the fact of how we dealt with conflict or rather how we didn't deal with conflict and it's had enormous impact on me because and I've learned this as a pastor because guess what there's some conflict in ministry and I've like learned all of a sudden like that I maybe need some tools for this and then when I got married I realized again like there's conflict in marriage and Maybe I need to unlearn some things because my marriage forced me to evaluate and still forces me regularly to evaluate what I have experienced and what that has cost me or else I will keep on hurting my wife or other people in ways that feel totally normal to me. Are you with me? 
So we have to evaluate the cost. Another dimension of evaluating the cost of our past is to look at the lessons that we've learned and begin to assess them. What are the lessons that I have really learned from my past? See, we have to evaluate the impact, and part of that is saying, what have I learned to be true and important in my life? See, Joseph engages his brothers very differently at age 30-something than he did at 17. He starts at 17 with this kind of careless arrogance where he looks at his family and says, I'm having these dreams, you're all going to bow down to me, right? I mean, this is like inside conversation, inside thought, okay? Like, keep that to yourself, Joe, and maybe go find another rancher nearby and say, I'm having some weird dreams. Can you tell me what to say? Don't say anything to your parents about this. Like, like, I think maybe he needs to rethink this. And in a lot of ways, that, that conversation led to the envy that led to him being thrown in a pit. Not that he deserved it. He did not deserve it. And let me make this really clear. Abuse is never justifiable. It is never okay with God and it shouldn't be tolerated. But how he related to his brothers was a powerful dynamic in what happened in his life. But by the time he ends up meeting them again, he holds all the cards. He has all the power. And yet, how does he relate? He serves them. He brings them over for barbecue. He hooks them up with grain and silver, and he serves them. In other words, he has learned to live extraordinarily humble because he's learned that it's God who exalts, not ourselves that exalt. And so we have to learn how to be like Joseph, to move toward our past in order to evaluate its impact and assess the lessons we've learned from it. There's three really helpful questions that I just want to give you today in assessing the lessons of your past. Three questions. It's this. When you look at your past and the lessons you've learned, would you ask, is it true? Is it important? And is it permanent? So you had somebody leave you and abandon you, which makes you feel like people aren't trustworthy. Is that true? Yeah, it's totally true that you feel that and that that had a negative effect on you, but is it true that all people are untrustworthy? Maybe not. Is it important? It's totally important because it's going to affect every part of your life because relationships are built on trust. Is it an important lesson to re-engage? Is it permanent? Do I have to always not trust people? Or are there some ways that I could see trust being rebuilt? Do you see why these questions are so vital? When you look at your past, is it true? Is it important? And is it permanent? That's the first thing we learn from Joseph's story about breaking the power of the past. We move toward it. We grieve it. We evaluate its cost and we assess its lessons. And by the way, this is a question that God often asks us. It's, it's, it's true in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve sinned and, and they're in the garden and, and they go, God, we're naked. And, and what does God say to them? How do, how do, who told you? Right? He's always asking us to go, where did you learn that? Is that really true? And why do you know it's true? Here's the second thing Joseph does. He refuses to use the past to excuse the present. Here's what I mean. He has every reason to be justifiably angry and to exact a pound of flesh out of his brothers. And he has every right to put him to death, to imprison him, to torment him in the same way they did to him. But he refuses to allow the past to excuse sin in the present. See, Joseph has been victimized, but he refuses to live as a victim. Because what's at stake for Joseph if, if he maintains his anger and exacts vengeance? 
What's at stake is he'll live as an angry and vengeful person. Who wins in that equation? No one. Yeah, cruelty never satisfies us, right? It just makes us more cruel. And so Joseph does some things to his brothers that we don't have time to get into today, but he does some things like sending them home with extra silver and sending them home with a stolen cup. And there's these things that are all designed, at first they look like revenge, but when you see the story as a whole, what he's doing is he's designing a loving and patient process to lead his brothers to confession, saying, this is sin I've done, and repentance, I'm turning from it, and I want to act differently. And it all leads to their recognition of who he is. But after Jacob, their father, dies, the author of Genesis tells us that Joseph reassures his brothers. He speaks kindly to them. This isn't a mask. He isn't pretending. He's literally using his power to build up the ones who've harmed him. He refuses to use the past to justify the present. Um, I I love this. I want to share it with you. It's It's a line or two from a commentary I read this week by one of the classic commentators on Genesis, a guy named Derek Kidner. He says this, Each sentence in his Joseph's threefold reply is the pinnacle of Old Testament and New Testament faith to leave all writing of one's wrongs to God, to see his providence and man's malice, and to repay evil not only with forgiveness but also with practical affection are attitudes which anticipate the adjective Christian and even Christ-like. This is the takeaway for each of us. The past might be really good at explaining why we feel the way we do, but it's horrible at justifying why we behave like we do. Does that make sense? Good. And so let me move ahead here quickly. Um, what Joseph ultimately realizes, though, is that these things are important for breaking the power of his past, but What it takes to take him all the way to a new story is that he has to allow God to essentially write his story, to be the author of his story. And we see this really powerfully. See, we all have different narratives. Some of us have a personal narrative that says, I'm a victim and everyone else is mean. Some of us have a narrative that says, I'm awesome and everyone else is stupid. Some of us have a narrative uh, that is too, gives ourselves too much power, some that doesn't give us enough power. But Joseph allows God to be the author of his story in a unique way. He sees that his own story is part of a much bigger narrative. I mean, he could have narrowed his story down to a story of tragedy and loss. Or he could have even narrowed it down to triumph and success. Look at him. I mean, he's powerful. But what does he do? He adopts a wide-angle lens and he says, God is ultimately the one writing my story. He's been writing it and he will continue to write it. And he's the central agent in the story. Look at what he says in Genesis 50, 19 through 20. He says, don't be afraid to his brothers. Am I in the place of God? What you intended for harm, God intended for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. See, Joseph shows us that breaking the power of the past literally means allowing Jesus to use what has happened in my life to highlight what he wants to do now and in the future. It means this practically. It means avoiding the place of God. My feelings may be valid, but they're not ultimately final It also means looking at my story with a lens of hope that says there's an author and he's good. This is what Paul's getting at in Romans 8 when he says in verse 28, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. He's not saying everything that happens is good. God detests 
what happens to many of us. And yet, he's more powerful than the evil done to us. And he says, I will take that and I can use it for good, even though it's bad. There's no part of your story, in other words, today, friends, that God cannot redeem and use when we choose a godly response. So here's what we want us to do in these last moments. As the band comes up, we're going to create a moment for you to pause, to just be, to quiet your heart and to be still before God and to ask the Holy Spirit some things this morning. To, to pause and, and would you just ask the Holy Spirit a couple questions. One is this, just would you bring to mind, Lord, one or two events, one or two people that have shaped me? Would you bring them to mind and would you consider how have those things affected the way I feel and think about myself and others and the world? And ask the Spirit then to show you how, how much power and influence am I currently giving to these things and how I live right now? I just want to invite you to pause and ask him those things as a way to begin a process maybe of breaking the power of the past to, to grieve some of the impact, to evaluate its cost. And in a moment, we'll move towards the, the table and take communion together. But for now, just slow your heart and mind. And would you give space to the Lord to speak those things to you? Well, the band just gives us a moment.